Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, don't laugh at me, but I, I feel old age is setting in quickly. Um, two things have happened recently to remind me of this fact that I'm now over the age of 40. And that is, uh, number one, I, I got fitted for some reading glasses the other day. All right, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll don those here sometime soon. The other thing was, um, uh, yeah, okay, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Rob. I thought that was Julie. All right, so. Um, and the other thing that happened was uh, I sat down to study this passage earlier this week. And I usually take the text of Scripture and... I I save it in a document, and then I I write all over it, just any thoughts or study, anything that comes to the passage. And when I went to save it, I save it under the same kind of title each week, and it says, you already have a document with this title, this title, and I'm like, okay, I don't, uh, that's strange, like, do you want to replace it? I'm like, no, so I go look at the other one, and and my notes on this passage were really detailed in in a previous document that I had, and I'm like, huh, I'm like, I'm wondering about this, and so then it dawns me three days later that I preached from this passage on Easter Sunday. Not like several Easter's ago, just like a couple months ago, I uh, preached from this passage. So uh, I didn't remember it. So if you don't remember it, I won't be, I won't be that discouraged. But uh, I'm thinking this isn't, this isn't good, all right? But uh, it's all right. We'll, 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 we'll enjoy our, our study anyway, hopefully. So. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, let's read the text together and... Um, and that we're, because uh, of how much is in this passage and maybe how important it is, and because we also have the Lord's table here today, uh, we're not going to make it all the way through the passage. This will just be part one of our study in this passage, and then, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll come to, to part two of it. So let's begin in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declared to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think it's a, it's a privilege uh, as a pastor to preach this kind of passage, uh, which I would say is one of the most comforting passages in all of the scriptures. And of course, every opportunity to unpack the scriptures is, is a blessing from the Lord, but but. A passage like this, I think, stands as a treasure of the Christian faith. 
that we sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope because we're assured of Christ's resurrection assures us of a resurrection to come and, and reuniting with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed uh, before us. Now, we're in the section of 1 Thessalonians here where Paul begins explaining uh, end-time events. In chapter 4, he's talking about the rapture of the church, which, which in this passage, the word caught up is really the Latin word uh, for rapture. And that's where the term rapture comes from. And then chapter 5, he's going to deal with the tribulation uh, in, in more detail. But let me just say at the outset, um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a shame what has happened to the study of the end times in our day. Uh, and that is that they have become the source of novels and movies and all kinds of wild speculation of trying to pin down the date of when Christ is returning and trying to, to uh, connect what's happening on the front page of newspapers with what the scripture says. And I guess some of that is, is okay, but it's turned into uh, wild speculation about the return of the Lord. But when you look at the scriptures and how they address this, this idea and this concept of, of Christ coming, um, you see the, the purpose is, is different than that, right? So in 4.18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then you get down to the end of uh, chapter 5, verse 11 of that section. He says there, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Right? So when we look at the, the, the emphasis on Christ coming in the scriptures, it's, a, it's an idea of comfort. It's one of motivation to live in holiness. It's, it's an encouragement to long for the return of the Lord, as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so as we study these passages, I'm not so concerned that we, we are geeked about speculation about the when and, and the specific details of the how so much, as I am concerned that we we keep this thought before us and study it with the same tone with what the scriptures give it to us. Like it's meant to be a comfort to us as we, as we study these, these things. So that's kind of free. We're not into the sermon yet. So just some introductory thoughts as we kind of walk into these two sections of scripture uh, that we would understand them in their context and the, and the purpose for which Paul has, uh, has given them to us. So let's pray together and uh, we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for the chance we have to consider the fact that you are coming soon to call us home to yourself, and we, we, we want and we ask that this reality would stir within us a, a, a longing for your return, that our eyes would be lifted off of the mundane, stressful preoccupations that we have in this life, and that you would lift our eyes to the coming of our Savior when we will forever be with him. Lord, let that be the longing of our heart and use this passage of Scripture to motivate us to have that as the longing of our heart. So help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So I believe it was the old Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, who made a, a statement like this. He said, It is the responsibility of the Christian minister to prepare his people to suffer. In other words, what it means to live in a, in a world where, where it's sin-cursed, it is the duty of pastors to equip people for the inevitable suffering that will come their way. Now, it's an interesting thought that Richard Baxter makes here because it implies that there are particular areas of the Christian life 
about which we want to be prepared before they, they happen. Right? I think our tendency is to not really think about a concept or, or think about an issue until we encounter it ourselves. And then we're like, oh, maybe I should look up the scriptures and see what the Bible says about these particular things. Right? So we, we kind of sometimes treat the Bible like YouTube. It's like we, we can't fix something in our home, so we look it up on YouTube and we figure out how to do it. Okay? And that's maybe okay sometimes in the spiritual life, but, but really there are particular areas of the Christian life that, that we need to be prepared for before we encounter the situation, because if we wait till we encounter the situation, it will be too late. And the, the particular area in which uh, Paul is, is preparing us here, and, and one of the particular areas of suffering that we face in our lives, is the loss of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And how do we respond in those situations where brothers and sisters have gone home to be with the Lord. And sometimes I think we should have to admit that we're not as prepared as we should be. And in this passage, it seems to be the case that they, they weren't uh, as prepared for, for, this, for, the, for the loss of their loved ones as they should be. And so Paul writes to inform them over these things, as he says in verse 13. So, he does, so they, they're not uninformed, but, but they're caught off guard in a sense. And we do not want to be caught off guard in these, in these matters. Now, when I became senior pastor here in 2016, one of the sad realities that I reflected on as, we, as, we, as I looked across the, the congregation was this thought that in the next 5 to 10 or 10 to 15 years, that there would be brothers and sisters among us who, because of their age, uh, would not be around in 10 to 20 years. And that was a very sad, uh, sad thing to, to consider. It's not that us younger people uh, are guaranteed we're going to escape uh, a coming death, you know, in, our, in, our, in, 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 the, in the young years. That, I mean, the Lord may call us home, but, but really as we think about the reality of, of death, I mean, for some people, the, the next major event is life in life is that they're going to home to be with, with Christ. And if you listen to dear older saints pray, they often pray about the coming of the Lord and the, the, the eagerness of, of meeting him and, and, and reuniting with spouses who have, who have gone home to be with the Lord. I remember reading the testimony of, of Pastor John Piper, who pastored uh, faithfully at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis for 33 years. And in his, his candidating sermon, back when he was much younger, in Philippians, he pre- preached from Philippians chapter 1, and, and he addressed this thought. Is, is dying, what Paul says in that passage, and, and being with Christ far better than remaining here. And he reflected on this, and years later he, he wrote about that candidating sermon, and, and, he, and he, he, wrote, uh, he wrote these words. He says, this is in his sermon, he said, if I don't believe that, how could I dare aspire to the role of pastor anywhere, not to mention here? where 108 members are over 80 years old and another 171 members over the age of 65. He says, but I do believe it. And I say to every gray-haired believer in this church with all the authority of Christ's apostle that the best is yet to come. And I don't mean fat pensions and luxury condominiums. I mean Christ. Now, he would go on to reflect and say this. He says, I averaged one funeral every three weeks for the first year and a half of my ministry, and many more after that. 
It was a sobering and sweetening season for a young pastor. It knit my heart together with many families as we bade farewell to friend after friend. And faring well is exactly what we believed they did. I think those are sweet and and sobering words now by a seasoned pastor who looks back and reflects on those early years in ministry. It reminds us of this reality that death is a part of, of our experience here in life. And as we survive, the longer we survive, the more people we know who have passed and have gone home to be with the Lord. And so what this passage does is it equips us with a hope in the midst of difficult seasons where we lose brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what I want us to do is is consider what the Apostle Paul says and learn from it and be prepared when we do encounter those situations of loss to come. Now, as we work through this passage this morning, we'll divide it into three sections. Well, at least that's what I wrote in my notes, and then it got too long. So for the next two weeks, we're going to divide it into three sections, all right? So we're going to start off with, number one, we're going to see this, that believers have hope in the face of death, which changes the nature of their grief, okay? And we find that in verse 13. The second thing we're going to see is that the believer's hope is anchored to the work of Christ and the word of Christ. We see that in verses 14 through 17. And then lastly, we're going to see that this hope is to be a source of comfort and encouragement in the face of loss. But we've got seven days till we get there, so we'll be, we'll be fine. So let's start off in uh, verse 13, where we see this point, that believers have hope in the face of death, which changes the nature of their grief. Okay, notice verse 13 again. The Apostle Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, as we walk into this passage, the question we want to ask here is, what's the situation that's taking place in the minds of the Thessalonians that, that makes it needful for Paul to write this section of, of Scripture? Okay, so, so what is it that the Thessalonians were uninformed about? Because he says, I, I write so that you're not uninformed. And Timothy's brought a report to him, and this is probably one area where they found themselves uninformed. And so, so what is the issue that these Thessalonian believers are, are wrestling with? Well, in all honesty, the passage does not explicitly say what the Thessalonians were struggling with. All we get is the answer to the, to the problem. Right? Paul gives the answer, and, and as we dissect Paul's answer, we're left to sort of wrestle with, well, what was the question that they were asking? Well, it seems that they were, that, that what was taking place among these, these young believers is that they were waiting in anticipation for Christ's return. And they were expecting it to come at any moment. And, and in the course of, of their anticipation, some of their fellow believers had died before Christ returned. And it doesn't mean that the Thessalonians were concerned about the spiritual condition of their fellow, fellow believers. That doesn't seem to be the case, right? They don't seem to be wrestling with, with were they saved, were they not saved. Um, they don't seem to be wrestling with, will they spend an eternity with Christ or apart from Christ. But their question seems to be, and this is based on Paul's answer, it seems to concern 
the relationship between the dead and Christ's future return. Okay, so would believers who passed away, would they somehow be at an irreparable disadvantage at the glorious return of Christ because they had passed away before it came. Almost this thought of it, it's, it's better to be alive for the return of Christ than it is to be dead because you'll join in it more fully. And so Paul writes to encourage them, to tell them that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ are going to come with Christ at the great and glorious resurrection. In fact, they, may have, they might have a better view than, than we who remain if, if, the, Lord, uh, if the Lord allows us to, to do so. Okay, so Paul writes in verse 14, he says that God will bring with him, or Christ will bring with him, those who have fallen asleep, verse 14. And then he gives this comfort in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, that is, with Christ and believers, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then he gives this hope, so we will always be with the Lord. Okay, so the, the question seems to be, what is the relationship of the dead in Christ who have died before his return? And this is what Paul writes to answer in that question. So as Paul writes to answer the question, he really gives two purposes here. His purpose is to educate, and his purpose is to encourage. Okay? Now let's deal with the first one, to educate. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So he, he writes here to inform them. Okay? Ignorance is not bliss in the matter of what happens after death. Now, the word he uses here, uninformed, I, th- I think that's an interesting word. And I think in general, none of us want to be uninformed. Right? We want to be thought of as people who are staying current with things that are taking place. We want to be relevant. We want to be a fountain of information, which is challenging in these days because given the amount of information that's cranked out and the pace at which it's come, the pace at which it comes is, is uh, almost impossible to, to stay current. You know, so, so not long ago I read an, an article about a, a, a newspaper, uh, or read an article about in, in a newspaper uh, about a new spider uh, that is come from Japan that's arrived here in the United States. Uh, that some people are in panic about, um, but for those of us who are uninformed, we're relatively blissful, right? Until now, and you're, you're, under, you're, you're concerned about, about this, this spider. But there are some matters about which we, we do not want to be uninformed. And particularly this matter of what happens after death is not a matter we want to be uninformed about. So Paul writes to inform them, and thankfully we get to listen in on this conversation so that we ourselves can be informed as well. But the second reason he writes is to encourage them. He he writes to remind these believers of really two realities. Reality number one, for the believer, death is only a temporary separation. So notice what he says here in in this verse, verse verse 13. He, He refers to those who have died as those who are asleep. Okay, now, now, what Paul's doing in that statement is he's, he's hinting at the fact that death for the believer is only temporary separation. Okay, now, in this day and age, when Paul wrote this, sleep was used as a, as a metaphor for death, just as, as it is sometimes in our own day. And it was a common expression for both believers and unbelievers. 
And we might say the same as it is today, that, that, it, that believers and unbelievers use it alike. But I like what Leon Morris says in his commentary about this phrase. He says this, The term sleep, okay, though it's used in the believing community and unbelieving community alike, is more at home in Christianity than it is anywhere else. In other words, because of the hope that we have in Christ and a future resurrection and, and, and seeing our brothers and sisters again, sleep is an especially appropriate term. There's, a, there's an old hymn that maybe gives this thought in more detail, and it's called, It Is Not Death to Die. The two stanzas go like this. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. And when Paul uses the word sleep, those are the realities that he's unpacking, that it is not death to die, but it is just temporary separation. And this is meant to encourage the Thessalonians. Now, sleep in this passage is really only referring to the body, okay? Not the idea that the soul sleeps in this intermediate state before Christ's resurrection. Because we know from other scripture passages that when at death, the body and the, and the, and the soul are separated, and the soul lives on in eternity uh, to be with Christ. So, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not, not will be present with the Lord, but is present with the Lord. He says in Philippians chapter 1, 23, to depart is to be with Christ. Okay, so while the body and soul separate, the soul is present with Christ. And so sleep is a helpful metaphor for death, not because it refers to unconsciousness, but because it refers to the fact that it's only a temporary separation from those from whom we are, are separated. Now, the second way that Paul seeks to encourage these believers is by pointing out that they have hope in the face of death, right? So go back to verse 13, and he says, I write these things so you're not uninformed. Then he says the purpose here, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, so he, 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 he gives two general responses to death in this passage. There is grief with hope, and there is grief without hope. And there are two types of people that hold these two different positions on grief. There are brothers, and there are others. Right? So notice verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have, not, who have no hope. So there are brothers and others. Brothers are those who, is another term for Christians, and others are those who are outside of the community of faith who do not know Christ. And he informs his audience here of believers that they don't need to despair in the face of losing a loved one because they have a hope in the face of death that is to encourage their heart. 
I think it's important to notice at this point that, that Paul is not saying that grief is, is unacceptable. That the, that the Christian response to death doesn't involve grief, but we just sort of, we just move on and we say, well, this is the Lord's will, we've got hope, and we, we, never, we never grieve the loss of, of a loved one. And some people respond to death in that way as if, as if grief is, is unacceptable. But grief is a, is a valuable part of, of recovering from the loss of, of loved ones. Okay, you remember that even Jesus himself grieved at the passing of Lazarus when, when John tells us that, that Jesus wept over the passing of Lazarus. What Paul's writing to prevent is a, is a hopeless grief, a, a grief with despair. And that's how the unbelieving community views death in, in, in terms of, of despair. But, but the, the, the believing community, they grieve, but they don't grieve without hope. They grieve with hope in the fact that Christ will reunite us again. Paul's saying Christian grief is different because it's not marked by hopeless despair, but it's, it's marked by, by a hopeful rejoicing in God's, in God's work and favor. Now, with there being many religions in, in our world, people respond to death in a number of different ways, do they not? Right? So some people believe in extinction, that if you bought into the origins of evolution, or the, or, the idea of evolution, or origin of the species, that, that what happens to you when you die is no more significant than, than what happens to a tree when it dies. It's over, you go out of existence, you feel nothing, you know nothing, you have no consciousness. Interestingly enough, though, because we are created in the image of God, and as Romans 1 tells us, we know innately that there is a God to whom we'll give an account for how we've lived, people who hold to, the, to these ideas of, of evolution, they still face death with all the fear and uncertainty that comes with not knowing Christ. Okay? So extinction is, is an option, but it's still you face death with the same grief and despair as, as other viewpoints. Some try to pursue death with the idea of, of escapism or denial, right? Louis XV of France, he, he demanded his advisors not use the word death in his presence. But no matter how much he tried to escape it, guess what happened to him? He did eventually, he did eventually die. But Paul says that for the believer, they can have hope in the face of death. That they don't need to fear they don't need to be worried about their ultimate destination, but they know that, that in the face of death, there is hope. Okay? There is, there is hope. Now, before we're moving on to our next point, I think we need to comment on this word hope. Okay? Because the way the word hope is used most often is probably this idea of a, a wish or a desire that something will happen. And that's not a wrong way to use the word hope, because Paul says in, in at some places in Scripture, I hope to come to you shortly, but I must see how things go first. Right? In this sense, he has a desire to go, but he has to, it's not, a, it's not a certainty at all. But then there are other places in Scripture where hope speaks not of a desire to, 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 to do something, but it speaks of a confident expectation that something will happen because of some other factor. Okay, so now keep that idea of hope 
in mind as we look at this passage. It's a confident expectation that's, that one thing will happen because of, the, because of another factor involved. That's how hope is being used in this passage. We don't grieve as those who have no confident expectation, but we grieve as those who do have a confident expectation, and it's because of something else connected to it. So we can, we can, be, we can rejoice in the face of, of even the loss of a loved one because we know that, that, that Christ is at work and will reunite us again. Okay, so now, that's the, the first thing we see in this passage is that believers have hope in the face of death which changes the nature of their grief, right? We see that. It's not a despair, but it's a hope-filled grief at the loss of, of loved ones. But it, it, it almost begs the question, how? Okay, Paul, I, I get what you're saying. Believers have, have, have hope in the, in the, in the face, of, in the face of, of grief or in the face of despair in the, in the situations of loss. But, but how is it that they have this confident expectation? Okay, what's it rooted in? What's it grounded in? Well, this is where our second point leads us in verses 14 to 17. We see, secondly, that the believer's hope is anchored to the work of Christ and the word of Christ. Okay, so, so I want you to notice this in verse 14 to 17 because we're really going to only get to the first one of these, and that's the work of Christ. But the believer's hope is anchored to the work of Christ and the word of Christ. So, so go back to verses 14 to 17, and we see this. Paul says, First of all, it's anchored to the work of Christ. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, those, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so, so our first, our, the first reason we can have this confident hope is because it's anchored to the work of Christ. But then he goes on secondly in verse 15, and he says, For, for this we declare to you by a word of from the Lord. So it's not only anchored to his work, but it's also anchored to his word. That this is something that Christ revealed and he has promised, and so it is certain. It is a confident expectation. Right? So if someone just says, well, I have hope that we're going to see each other again, it's like, well, that's, that's nice, you know, because a lot of people speak of death in terms of like, well, we'll see each other in the big roundup in the sky. Okay? But, but how... Do you know that you have this confident expectation? Or, or what's the grounds for it? What's it anchored to? And so Paul doesn't stop in verse 13, but he moves on to verse 14 and 15 to say, because if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, we can have this hope. And because it's been revealed and promised by a word from the Lord. Okay, So our hope is anchored to these two things. But this morning, let's just look at the first thing that our hope is anchored to, and that is the work of of Jesus Christ. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, so our, our hope is anchored to the work of Christ. Now, when theologians talk about the study of the work of Christ, they distinguish it between the study of the person of Christ. Okay, the person of Christ refers to his, his deity, his eternal existence, who he is as, as a person. Okay, But the work of Christ refers to what he worked out or accomplished in our redemption. And the work of Christ can be divided into two categories. His humiliation and his exaltation. 
And you'll notice that's what he does here, right? He says, for since we believe that Jesus died, his humiliation, and his resurrection, and he was raised, his exaltation. Okay, so the work of Christ can be understood in, in those two categories of humility, or his humiliation and exaltation. So in his humiliation, Christ willingly came to this earth to atone for our sins. The sinfulness of man necessitated a sacrifice be made in order to satisfy the just wrath of God. Okay? If God is to maintain his justice, then he could not simply sweep sin under the rug or ignore that it has ever happened. Will not, uh, Abraham says, will not the, the judge of all the earth do right? That, that if he is the judge of all the earth, he will justly deal with all sin. So he couldn't just sweep it under the rug. Yet instead of carrying out his justice on all mankind, he was gracious to, and he was, I would say he was pleased and he was satisfied to put the punishment on Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. So where Jesus died, he died as our substitute. He died in the place where we deserved to die for our sins. And in doing so, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Now most people will think that they have not done anything bad enough to deserve eternal condemnation before a just God. But the problem is when we talk about our sinfulness, we're, we're willing to acknowledge on some level that we're not as good as we should be. But the problem is we always look at ourselves from a, a relatively good standpoint. So, so in comparison to someone else, we can always find someone worse than we are. But the problem is, uh, and I would say probably too, we, we often evaluate ourselves in terms of a herd mentality. Like everyone else is doing it, and so if I'm in that group, it can't be that bad. But when we stand before God to be judged, we are, are not judged on how relatively good we were, and we're not judged as a group, we're judged as individuals. And so when we stand before God, we'll, we'll give an account for, for how we lived and did we turn and repent from our sin. And in that sense, we stand guilty before the judge of all the earth, and even the smallest sin separates us from us, from him because of his purity and his holiness. And so what Paul says here is that because of Jesus' death and taking the penalty for our sins, that now the believer can have hope in the face of death because our sin problem has been dealt with. Okay? So that's what he says first. He says, he says for if we believe that Jesus died, but notice he doesn't stop there. He moves on in verse 14 to say, if, Jesus, if we believe that Jesus died, and then he says this, and rose again, then our hope is anchored to this, okay? So not only was the death of Christ necessary to accomplish our hope, but so was the resurrection of Christ necessary, okay? After his death, he triumphantly rose from the grave, gaining victory over sin and death, had he remained in the grave, death would have won, and there would be no hope for future believers. But the resurrection of Christ guarantees our future resurrection as well. Now turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, if you would, where we read our scripture reading, and this passage is helpful for, for understanding the, the relationship between our future hope 
and Christ's resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15 we we read in this this section that Paul was writing to address this idea of, of people that were doubting the concept of the resurrection. And so what Paul does in verses 16 to 19 is he works through a series of implications if the resurrection is not true. So he says in, in verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as, we, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, if there's no resurrection, then, then, then no one has raised from the dead. And if that's the case, and Christ has not been raised from the dead, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Because at the heart of it is the resurrection, and if that's not true, then this is just empty words that we speak. In verse 15, he goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. And if it is true that the dead are not raised, then he's, he's misrepresenting God. So Paul, claiming to speak on behalf of God, says if the resurrection is not true, well then, then we're misrepresenting God himself. He goes on in verse 16 to say this again, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And in verse 17 he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So forgiveness is, is, only, is not just accomplished through the death of Christ, but it's accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. But notice verse 18 as it relates to our passage. If Christ is not raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Okay, if Christ has not been raised, then everything that's promised for the future of the believer is not happening because Christ remains in the grave. Verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we've given our lives to a cause that's not even true. But then he says this in verse 20. Ah, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that word first fruits should stand out to you. Okay? Because it is an Old Testament term that referred to the first harvest of the agriculture of, of the land or, or other aspects too, but, but really the, 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 first, the first harvest that the Lord gave. And Old Testament believers were to designate that portion as an offering to the Lord. But it was the guaranteed of, of much more to come. Okay? So the first fruits meant there were second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and on and on and on fruits as well. So what we have here is, is Paul's using this Old Testament idea of first fruits to connect it to this, this concept of resurrection. That Christ was the first fruits, and in being the first fruits, it was the guarantee that there would be more resurrection to come. Now, obviously, Christ wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. He, he raised people himself, and in other places in Scripture, people are, 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 rise from the, are raised from the dead. But, but Christ was the first resurrection to, to a life that n- knew no death afterward. 
right? All people who were raised in the, in the scriptures, they eventually died. But Christ was the first one who raised from the dead and faced no death after that. And our resurrection will be that kind of resurrection. We will be raised to, to a life that then experiences no death after that. And so Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, and the resurrection to come is the, the second, third, fourth, and, and ongoing resurrection. I like what one author says it this way. The resurrection of Christ is a pledge and a proof of the resurrection of his people. Or in other words, Christ's resurrection guarantees the sequel, which is the resurrection of all believers. You understand the concept of a sequel, right? Just think about Toy Story 9 and how many sequels there have been after that, okay? Every time they come out with one, you're guaranteed there's going to be another one, right? So Christ's resurrection is the guarantee, the pledge and the proof of the resurrection of believers. All right, so now go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, and let's make this connection with our passage. So Paul says, if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, then our hope is anchored in that. Both the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ give us hope. Now there's one more thing we need to highlight before we close, and it's this. It's not simply the death and resurrection that make this possible. But there is a condition in order to have this hope. He says, for since we believe, and it really can be translated for if we believe, that Jesus died and rose again. So in order to have this hope, it requires that you and I believe and embrace and trust in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not just applied to all people, but it's applied to those who repent and believe in the death and resurrection. Now, I've belabored this point numerous times with, with, with you as a congregation, but I'll, I'll do it one more time at least in case there are some among us who are, are not Christians. Okay, the term belief, it really, as it's used in the Bible, as it's used by, by the reformers, had the idea of, of, of three ingredients being involved in, in saving faith. And those three ingredients were, were knowledge, agreement, and unreserved trust. Right, so the way in which we use the word belief today is like, you know, hope in something that, that, that may or may not happen, and it's against all odds, but hey, we believe it regardless, of, regardless of, the, of the indicators of the facts, okay? In this case, faith, in a biblical sense, involves knowledge, agreement, and, and unreserved trust. And just like any other thing that has ingredients, if you don't have all the ingredients together, it doesn't make up the, the real thing. All right, if I want to make chocolate chip cookies, and I have eggs, and I have chocolate chips, but I don't have the other ingredients, all I have are, are chocolate chip eggs, okay? So all the ingredients have to be, to be involved in this. So, so knowledge. You have to know the facts about Jesus Christ. That he died, why he died, the purpose for which he died, right? So, and, and, and you have to know about the resurrection. You have to know the, the gospel messages as we just unpacked. So, so one has to, to know the facts, but knowing the facts alone is just one ingredient and doesn't give you biblical saving faith. You have to, secondly, agree or assent to it. Okay, 
knowing that Jesus died for sins, but, but, but agreeing with the fact that, yeah, he died for my sins. It has to be applied personally. Okay? And then that involves the third ingredient, which is unreserved trust. That we come to the place in our lives where we recognize that we've been trusting in ourselves, in our own righteousness to earn salvation, but we have to come to the place in our life where we say, I've decided to depend entirely on Jesus and on Jesus alone, for his death and resurrection are my only hope to eternal life. And we stop depending on ourselves, and we convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only when you have those three ingredients together, knowledge, agreement, and unreserved trust, do you actually have saving faith? So Paul says, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and you put your whole trust in it, well then this hope is for you. And Lord willing, I'm with a body of believers here this morning who most of us have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. And this is our hope. And it's anchored to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So two thoughts of application then, and we'll, we'll work to move toward the Lord's table. If this hope is not yours this morning, then it's offered to you, and the way you receive it is through repentance and faith. Like if you'll turn from your sins this morning, and you'll place your trust in Jesus Christ, then this hope in the face of death can be yours. And so if you have questions after, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. We don't want you to walk out of here this morning not knowing whether this hope is yours or whether this hope is not yours. But all you need to do is, is repent and believe in the gospel, and you can be saved. And the second thing we see, in, or by way of implication this passage, is, is if you have repented and believed, then this is your hope this morning. That you can grieve in the face of death, but you don't grieve as those who have no hope. But you grieve... With a, with a hope that you will see your brothers and sisters in Christ again. And as I said at the beginning, it's a privilege and a joy to preach what is one of the most comforting texts in, in all of Scripture. And it stands as a, as, a, as, a, as a core of our Christian faith. Right? Anytime a brother and sister in Christ pass away, what do we say? We sorrow we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Why? Because our hope is anchored in Christ. And it's passages like this and truths like this that carry us through these, these seasons of hardship. And they're able to lift our eyes above the pain of this world so that we can gaze our eyes on Christ and look forward to his return. When, when Brooke was young, She's still young, I think, right? So uh, we would take these six-hour trips to, to West Virginia to go see uh, Mimi and Pop-Up. And she was probably about three, and she loved the concept of going to see her grandparents. So we would drive for like two or three hours, and we would stop, and we would, like, all right, we're going to get something to eat, and we're going to use the restroom. And she'd just say, I'll wait till we get to Mimi and Pop-Up's house. We're like, well, no, that's like, it's like a six-hour drive, all right? You're going to be hungry, and Lord, you're probably going to have to use the restroom as well. And it's like, no, I'll, I'll just wait till we get to Mimi and Papa's house. We'd have to kind of go 
coach her and convince her, like, oh, well, we're going in anyway. You know, you can't just sit in the car, you know, that kind of thing. And so um, what, what was happening there was, 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 was a, an undisturbed focus, or what we might say a longing for where she's heading. Right? Remember the end of the Apostle Paul's life in, in 2 Timothy 4? He's like, I've finished the course, I've, I've run the race, I've, 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 I've kept the faith. And he says that there's a crown of life for all those who, who have loved his appearing. In other words, that, that their, their eyes are fixed on it, and that is the longing of their heart. And it's this type of passage that, that, that fixes our eyes on Christ so that we have that sense of longing for Christ's return. Older saints who have experienced loss, who have walked the course of this life, they probably do a better job than those of us who are young and distracted, who think we have our whole lives ahead of us. And so passages like this remind us of where our hope lies. It's not in anything in this world. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to consider these truths this morning. And uh, may, may they really shape us so that they don't just encourage older people or people who have recently lost someone, but that they begin to shape all of our hearts so that we begin to long for your return and so that we walk through this life with a, with a sense of hope that is a testimony to a lost world. Father, we're grateful for your word and how you have not left us to, 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 to wonder how we're to live this life or what the end results will be. But Lord, we've got confidence in you. For it's in Christ and we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to actually... Yes, we do. Yeah, we're going to sing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. So let's...